This is episode 45 of Cinescope, and you did send me back to the future, but I'm back. I'm back from the future. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Ethan Small to talk about one of our favorite films, Back to the Future Part 2. Ethan, how are you doing tonight? Doing great, Chad. Thanks for having me back. Glad to have you back. You tweeted at me a couple weeks ago saying, hey, Chad, I'd like to talk Back to the Future parts two or three or whatever at some point sometime soon. And I said, OK, Ethan, let's do it. Let's let's revisit Back to the Future uh, because, you know, the first very first piece of Cinescope content I ever put out was a discussion over the first film with TJ and Joe. That's right. That's right. I remember that. Yeah. Right. So a long 45 episodes to, ago, we talked about that and. You know, that was episode zero even. So it's been a while, and I think the time is ripe to revisit my favorite movie franchise. So thank you for bringing it up. Absolutely, yeah. I I was really glad when you responded so that uh, you were interested in doing it, and I immediately popped in the first first one and watched it through and enjoyed it thoroughly and and then just watched the second one last night. So I'm ready to go. Me too. But before we get started, how about you remind everybody out there who you are, what you do, anything that you want these people to know? Sure. So um, my name is Ethan. I live in Colorado. I uh, am a professional marketer right now, and I uh, also have a personal development blog that I post about once a month on. And yeah, I just love movies and enjoy listening to your podcast and excited to be back. Yes, because you were on way back in around episode six, I believe, when we talked about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. That's right. Yeah, I think it was six. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty early, pretty early on. Yeah. It was. So it's, it's good to have you back on the show. And uh, we've advanced a little bit further on and we're getting to the big one year mark, which is crazy. I know. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm happy with the show so far and I'm looking forward to doing it as long as I'm able to. So. With that, let's get started. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so we're talking about Back to the Future Part 2. It was released on November 22nd of 1989, so that's a four-year gap between the release of the first film and the second film. It was directed by Robert Zemeckis, who also directed Romancing the Stone, Back to the Future 1, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Back to the Future Part 3, Forrest Gump, Contact, What Lies Beneath, Castaway, The Polar Express, Beowulf, A Christmas Carol, Flight, The Walk, and Allied. He's my favorite director, and I think that filmography boasts exactly why. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It was written by Bob Gale this time around. The first film was co-written by the two of them, but this time Bob Gale wrote the script. Zemeckis helped with some of the story outline stuff. The music was composed by returning composer Alan Silvestri, whose filmography is basically Zemeckis filmography, as well as Captain America, the first Avenger, the Avengers, and is set to compose for the upcoming Avengers films, the uh, Infinity War, and then the Untitled Part 2. 
The movie stars Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, Thomas Elf Wilson, Elizabeth Shue, James Tolkien, Jeffrey Wiseman, and Flea. And even has a very fleeting performance by Elijah Wood in his very first film <laughs> role at age eight. So let's get into it. What was your first experience with this movie that you remember at least? The first time I watched this movie was in my basement in my parents' house. I was probably five, six years old. And my dad introduced me to this movie. Uh, he was a big fan. And just right from the get-go, I was hooked and just fell in love with it. I was just enthralled by the whole time travel element and, and the story. And I don't have much specific memories beyond that, but it was my dad that introduced me to the movie. And I just absolutely loved it right from the get-go and had a big impact on me. And it just got me thinking, it, even though it's not a deep film, that it's very much just for entertainment, but there were just some elements of the time travel that just got my, the gears in my brain turning and, and, and just some emotional things about it. You know, and I, I guess I am speaking to the trilogy as a whole, but, but I, I would in, absolutely include part two in, in that description. Cool. Um, I am curious, before I get into mine, how would you rank the three movies? And this isn't something we normally do on Cinescope, but I've been very vocal in the past about how I would <laughs> rank these movies. So I'm curious what your <laughs> personal ranking is. So I haven't really put much thought into that before, but I guess my gut reaction is is actually to rank the first one as the best, the third one as the second best, and this one as the third best. But that's not to say anything bad about it. I, I truly love this film, despite I know there's a lot of this movie gets a lot of flack, and I certainly have my own criticisms about it. And even though I would rank it third, I still absolutely adore it and just thoroughly enjoy it every time that I watch it. Well, you did pick the correct order. So congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I've been vocal about my opinions of, of the order of these three movies. And like you, I love all three of them. They're my favorite movie franchise in general. The first one is my favorite movie of all time, but I love Back to the Future 2 and I love Back to the Future 3 just as much. Now, just to to put this out there, we're talking about Back to the Future 2 now, which necessarily means that we will be talking about Back to the Future 3 soon. I've got somebody else that I'll be talking about that one with here in a few weeks. So you'll, you'll hear more of my thoughts on that soon. But this one... Of the two Back to the Future sequels, I think that this one sticks out in people's minds because of the whole future aspect. Mm -hmm. And that's not to be discounted. There, there's the, the future sequence in this film is very cool, and they, they, they did a lot, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. But anyways, talking about my first experience, like the first film, this is just one of those movies that's sort of always been a part of my life, at least the majority of my life. The first time I think I watched the first film was on cable television with my family. But I think the first time I watched this one specifically, it was either a marathon on that channel or it would have been when I got the trilogy on DVD for my birthday when I was 10. And it was the, unfortunately the full screen release. <laughs> um, so I didn't have the original proper aspect ratio, which was remedied when I got the 25th anniversary Blu-ray that came out in 2010. But you know, it's it's a great film. I, I enjoy this. It It's complex. It's darker than the first film. It's darker than the third film. It's definitely sort of oh, yeah. the Empire Strikes Back 
in tone, at least, of the trilogy. For sure. And in a lot of ways, it's a stepping stone, a character stepping stone for Marty, especially, and for Doc as we approach the third film. Going into story a little bit, you have to remember this film was, or this film and part three were originally conceived as a single script. And the reason it became a trilogy is because it was so long that they had to split it somewhere. And I think that's definitely to the third film's benefit. And to this one, it it gives us a chance to visit three different time periods in a big way. I did not know that. That's really interesting. Yeah, even though I I love these movies so much and I've seen them all a million times, I've never really took the time to read up on some of the background. So that's that's really interesting. And and I do like that that we get to explore those different eras throughout the trilogy. I mean, just starting with the very beginning, I love that this movie starts with the ending of the first film. You know, the main reason they did that is because they had to recast Jennifer because Claudia Wells had to back out of the film because her mother was in poor health. And so they recast Elizabeth Chu and basically reshot, shot for shot, the ending of the first film. Now, what what's funny is, you know, the original film wasn't planned to have sequels. The ending of the first film was just meant to be sort of a teaser for nothing. <laughs> and then it was so popular, it was such a runaway success that they said, okay, well, let's make a sequel. And going back, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale have said, you know, if we knew we were going to make a sequel, we would not have put Jennifer in the car because that, that, <laughs> that posed its own problems in the storytelling as, as far as what they had to figure out to fit her in. It's just cool that we start with the familiar. We start with something we've seen before and it transitions seamlessly into this beautiful opening credit sequence with the Alan Silvestri main theme playing over the top of it as we see the names floating and these beautiful sky, all these clouds. And then we descend from the clouds into the future. And that's, that's such a cool opening for the film. It is. I I, I always love that. The soaring through the clouds, Uh, not as good as the uh, clocks at the, in the first one, but I, I do, I do really enjoy it. And I do enjoy the music and it's it's a great uh intro yeah what else about the story do you like in this one well the whole time travel element is just it's fascinating to me and i know people have brought up all the flaws with it but it really works for me and i guess speaking more to the story this movie in particular it's very you're on the edge of your seat the whole time because it's just go 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 from one one thing to the next and it's this constant Marty and Doc attempting to achieve their goals. And it's very compelling. It's very funny and interesting. And it's just, it's so fun to watch. I just love it. Yeah, talking about the the future aspects of the film specifically in a little bit more in depth, you know, from the very beginning when they, they descend into the traffic and they're, uh-oh, we're in the opposing lane and uh, a taxi <laughs> goes over the DeLorean and Marty goes, what the hell was that? And Doc just says, taxi cab like it's a, the plainest thing in the world right right he's so nonchalant about exactly it. <laughs> he's, he's very matter of fact and from that very moment and going descending into the town square and seeing everything that we're familiar with all these settings that we know refitted for a different time it's the aesthetic design of the future and the ideas presented that are what endear people to this movie so much i think and i don't blame them for that you've got flying cars you've got hoverboards you've got the uh, giant Jaws 19 gag that's really funny. It's a very (laughs) cool presentation of the future. And, you know, even for a film that came out in 1989, the visual effects, I think, hold up very well. You've got a lot of physical prop special effects, I think, rather than computer generated like they'd all be today. 
And I think that it it works for this film. They do an excellent job carrying over the the Hill Valley town square and and the way that they introduce it and and you get these different shots with the jaws and then the Texaco car and just all the flying cars around and you get to see people dressed in these bizarre outfits and they really went over the top I mean with this I, I feel like they really put the pedal to the metal with not just the story and the way that it progresses so rapidly from one hectic scene to the next, but even just with the way that they approached the future and they just went all out. And I think it works because it's, yes, there's some things that are just maybe beyond belief, but at the same time, there are things that make it actually make it really believable because you see things like familiar logos, like the Mattel logo on the, on the hoverboard and the AT&T on, on the doors and the, uh, Ford cars, Ford cars. Yeah. And later you see the, uh, pizza hydrators made by black and Decker. And, and, and that actually kind of adds for me, I think it adds to the believability of a bit of a bit, but, and I just, I remember watching this back in, I don't know, 1995 and, and really thinking, Oh my God, 2015, that's so far from now. And like actually being curious about what is going to come true that they've presented here. But at the same time, it's very over the top and it's entertaining because of it. It's funny now that we're in the future of this film. We're, we're no longer behind 2015. So we can see exactly how much they did get right, how much they predicted. And, you know, I don't think they were necessarily trying to predict exactly what 2015 was going to be like, but they did get a surprising amount right. They got the, the whole idea of us being a nostalgia-driven culture. They've got the Cafe 80s. They've got this 80s hand-me-down shop that very cheekily has a Who Frame Roger Rabbit stuffed animal in the window. Uh, and that movie came out one year previous to this one, directed by Zemeckis. And then you also have multi-screen television. You've got video chat. You've got facial and sort of biometric recognition, 3D movies. And they missed the Cubs winning the World Series by just one year. <laughs> so that's pretty impressive for people who are predicting this stuff 26 years uh, before the fact. Yeah, it, it really is. And I also enjoy the Nike power lacing shoes, the fact that they made those into completely functional shoes that you can buy. It's really cool. Yeah, even though they didn't get everything right about what existed, they inspired a lot of things that people are striving to make exist. You have these water-powered hoverboards, and you've got people attempting to make flying cars, and you've got people making the Nike self-lacing shoes, all those kind of things. So even though it, it doesn't get everything right, it, it inspired a lot of the things in the film to become realities or realities in progress. Now, this movie was also very important in establishing sort of the tropes of the trilogy. You know, you've got the scene in the Cafe 80s or Lou's Cafe or the aerobics facility as it is in normal 1985. You've got the courthouse in Town Square. You've got Biff and Griff being the antagonist. You've got Goldie Wilson the third coming back to run for mayor. You've got the skateboard chase. You've got all these things that are established in this film that become a fixed moment that happens in the third film as well. You have the scene where Marty wakes up in the 27th floor of Biff's tower being consoled by his mother. You've got all these things that happen in this film that establish themselves as staples of the trilogy that return even in the third film. 
I especially love the uh, Nobody Calls Me Chicken from Marty. I, I think that one is particularly funny, and I, I like the way that it shows up in the third film. Agreed. You talked about the the time travel itself in this movie. We talked about in the first Back to the Future episode about how this version of time travel is the cause and effect version, where anything you do can change something in the future, as opposed to like in Prisoner of Azkaban, where it's a fixed timeline and what has been done has already been done. You can't change anything, right? Mm-hmm. And one thing I like that they present in this movie is this notion of the the changing newspaper or the alternate timeline itself, where there are and I have more to say about this later, there are consequences to actions and you are able to see instantly when they have succeeded or when they have not succeeded yet. And the the notion of the, the newspaper that says that George McFly was murdered and then that changes at the end or when Doc Brown was committed, that changes to commended. That's a very cool way to introduce the idea of seeing your actions having an effect. The reason why it works so well for me is the way that we get to see the particularly at the uh, enchantment under the sea dance and the recreation of that or the re-experiencing of that it, it just works so well in the way that you get to see the different angles on the events that you saw in the first movie it's extremely fun to watch and I feel like it's believable because there's no moment where they changed anything in any noticeable way. And there's no moments where it's like, oh, he would have been able to see himself. You know, Marty would have been able to see himself, uh, you know, from the car or something like that. They make it work so well. And one standout scene from that was when Marty is in Strickland's office and you can see outside the window and he's trying to figure out how he's going to get the sports almanac. And then he overhears George about to clock Biff and knock him out. And it's so cool to see that from the window and just see that different angle on it and then see how Marty in this present timeline figure out how to navigate finding the book. As cool as the future scenes are, I think my favorite part of the movie is when they go back to 1955 and we do get to re-experience these events from the first film in new perspectives. So you get to see Doc sort of bumping into himself at the clock tower and doing his best to hide his identity and still having this conversation with himself, which is really cool. And Marty trying to be as inconspicuous as he can, very conspicuously, unfortunately <laughs> for him, with the leather jacket and the sunglasses and the fedora. And he's avoiding himself as much as he can and going this way and preventing them from jumping him on stage. And it, it gets confusing here and there. But I think that the 1955 portion of the movie it brings back a lot of what I love about the first movie. It brings back the, the lighter tone. It brings back more of the comedy, whereas the first two acts of the film are very much darker and very much sort of less comedic in nature. There are funny moments for sure, but the first two parts of the film, especially the second act, when they go back to the 19, alternate 1985, I mean, that's a scary place. So going from that scary, dark place to the very bright, very happy and clean 1955 was just like a sort of a return to form for me. And I really appreciated having that call back to the original, even though we, we do get to experience some of the same scenes in some respect, we get to experience them differently. And I enjoy that. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's a bit of a relief for the viewer because those first two scenes are so heavy as, uh, Marty would say. Um, it's pretty intense at certain points. I mean, from the mo moment that Marty arrives and he's walking around and there's there's literally blood on the streets and 
another really intense moment is when he finds out that George has been murdered and he's at the cemetery and he's screaming, please, God, no, it's, it's riveting, really. Last thing I have to say about the story section is, again, we talked about in the first episode, all the setups and payoffs. And that's really what Back to the Future, I think, does best is setting things up at the beginning and paying them off later. So in this one, you have when Marty first arrives in town square and he's making his way to the cafe eighties, he walks by that nostalgic eighties store and he see it sort of zooms in on the almanac. And of course we don't know its significance yet, but later on we see, Oh, he's going back because he had this idea to make money. And then you have doc making a comment about, Oh, how they'll, they'll have us committed. If we tell the police officers that we're time travelers and lo and behold, and then alternate 1985, he's committed. You have the automobile accident that's foreshadowed at Marty's house in the future that doesn't come until later at the end of part three, but that's already foreshadowed now. The whole nobody calls me chicken, that's part of that automobile accident, and that sets up Marty's one big character flaw that he didn't have in the first one, but we have to remember in the first film, we only were there for a week of his life, so it's not unreasonable that we didn't know everything about Marty in the one week that we knew him from the first film. Just a few more. The concept of going to the Old West, we get a peek at Mad Dog Tannen in the Biff Tannen Museum at the casino. You have Doc mentioning that the Old West is his favorite time period. And also, he's actually wearing a train shirt for a lot of the film. You get Needles introduced as an antagonist. You get Doc saying, you know, maybe once I destroy the time machine, I'll be able to focus on the one other great mystery of the world, women. And lo and behold, in the next film, he gets a love interest. And uh, throughout this film, last this is the last one I had to mention. Throughout this film, the time circuits are shown to be blinking, and Doc has to hammer it a few times to indicate that they're they're sort of faulty. But he fixes them, or at least hitting it temporarily fixes it. And then at the end of the film, of this film, when the DeLorean is struck by lightning, where does he go? To the coordinates that were flashing on the time circuits the whole rest of the movie. So there's a whole lot that is set up and a whole lot that is paid off in this film and even looking forward to the next film. And I always look to Back to the Future for doing these kind of things where they can show us a tiniest little snippet of something, but don't worry, that's going to come back in the future in some big way. The setups and payoffs are incredibly gratifying. And I just want to mention my absolute favorite one, which it's total spoiler, but the scene where... Biff is watching the Clint Eastwood film and Clint Eastwood is wearing the bulletproof vest that he's kind of made. The fact that in the third film, Marty actually uses that to save himself. It's awesome. Exactly. That's a big one. And the fact that he uses the name Clint Eastwood throughout the whole next film. Right. (laughs) I love so much of just like the, the way things work in this universe, the way Zemeckis and Gale have taken the first film, brought it into a different sort of tone, but still continues the the adventures of these characters that we already love. So uh, let's talk about those characters. What do you have to say about Marty? Well, Marty is just amazing. And and of course, Michael J. Fox, he plays Marty, the son, the daughter. (laughs) Pretty impressive that he was able to pull that off. But Marty as a character, he's he's got so many unique characteristics that are so it's such a strong character. Um, and you you really in every moment are cheering for him and rooting for him the whole time. And 
he's just very likable because he's got such strong values and he's still a kid, but yet he is incredibly brave and, and knows what is important to him. And it, it has such a strong desire to fight for what he believes in. And, and you see this relationship between him and Doc, especially just Doc is just, he loves him and he's his best friend really. And it's really enjoyable to watch that. And just the certain recurring phrases that he has and things that he says like, oh, this is heavy. And the the new one that develops is nobody calls me chicken. Uh, and there's just a lot of other things that he says that strengthen his character and and make him so unique. He, he, he has this interesting balance of being both really confident and brave, but he's also kind of quirky and awkward. And I really like that. He feels true to the Marty that we got in the first film, which was very important, I think. But it was also important that we got more to the character than we got in the first film. Because the Marty of the first film works for the first film. But if we had just gotten the same thing for the second and for the third, where does the character go? We already established so much in the first film. So like I said earlier, he was given the character flaw in this one of not liking when people call him chicken. He's easily taunted into situations that get him in trouble. And it shows that we're all flawed people and it gives him something to overcome over the course of this film and the next one. And it's not resolved fully until the next film, though this one plants those seeds of him realizing, you know, I can't let people taunt me into worsening my life. And that that's a big part of his story in this film. Also, we get to see how deeply he cares about his family. In an alternate 1985, he's outraged when Biff pushes his mother to the ground and though he's at the disadvantage and you know Michael J. Fox is not a big guy he he charges at Biff ready to do him some harm if he can and when he learns of his father's fate and learns that he's dead and he goes to the graveyard the absolute despair in his voice as he shouts out oh please god no it's heartbreaking watching him in that moment because it shows exactly how much he cares about the people he loves and it sets him into action Everything from that point on is about saving his dad and saving his mother from the fate of having to be married to Biff. And that culminates at the end of the film when they've been successful. He's burning the almanac and he looks at the newspaper in his hand. It changes from George McFly murdered to George McFly honored. And compared to the absolute despair he feels when he's yelling at his father's grave, you can hear the absolute joy he feels in that scene when he is celebrating Doc, we did it, Doc. My dad is alive. My father's alive. And we were successful. And you can really feel for the character in that moment because, like I said, you can tell how much he loves his family. Just one more point on Marty. I really just appreciate how brave he is, despite that he's not the biggest guy in the world. He's not the toughest guy in the world, but he is willing to take a shot at Griff, who's got these implants in him. And and he he's willing to stand up to Biff, who's carrying a gun and and who's so much bigger than him. He's so brave and it's very admirable. I agree. And this film also explores more of the Doc and Marty relationship. You know, in the first film, we get one and a half scenes of Marty with the Doc that he's friends with. And then the whole rest of the movie is spent with the 1955 Doc, who he has to start a relationship with from scratch, basically, because 1955 Doc doesn't know 1985 Marty until they bump into each other. This one, we see Marty with the Doc that he's been friends with all these years. 
and we get to see that relationship building. And so from that, we get the the catchphrase that Marty sort of has in this film, which is, hey, you're the Doc Doc. And to me, that just shows his his faith in Doc. Doc is somebody who's got his best interests in mind, who's smart, who can plan, who can envision the scenarios ahead of them. And he understands that when I deviate from Doc's plans, things don't always go great. When he buys the almanac, that wasn't something recommended to him by Doc. In fact, Doc told him, hey, you don't need to look too much into anything here. You're going to get yourself in trouble with your future. And lo and behold, Biff gets a hold of the magazine and takes it back to 1955. And that causes the whole rest of the movie. So it helps him to learn that when he deviates from Doc's plans, things don't go well. And you also see at the end of the film, uh, when the time machine has been struck by lightning and Doc has disappeared, the despair that he feels there, he's distraught when, whoa, what do I do now? That's the guy who, he was my ticket home. He was my best friend. What am I going to do now? So the the despair he has at losing Doc. And then again, to contrast that, the joy he feels when he gets the letter from the Western Union, which is a really cool uh, way of introducing the era of the next film is having this letter delivered to him from 70 years in the past. And the joy he feels, okay, Doc survived the strike of lightning. He's in the past. And now I need to find the other Doc. And that brings us back to the ending of the first Back to the Future again, which I think is, it's again, it's a lot of fun. And that's what the the ending third of this movie has. And even the first third, to a certain extent, has going for it is the fun of everything. Yeah. And just speaking to, again to Marty and Doc's relationship, the way that he, the postman that delivers the letter, he says, uh, do you need any help, kid? And Marty says, there's only one man who can help me. He's he's so confident in Doc, and he knows that he, he's brilliant. And, uh, of course, when he goes and runs and finds him and, and says, I'm back. I'm back from the future. And Doc passes out. It's very funny. Yeah, their their relationship grows so much in this movie, and you get to – experience that even more in the third film. I love the the carryover to the third movie. Me too. In this one, you get to see likewise how much Doc cares about Marty. You know, here's this guy who has preached the consequences of meddling in time and what could happen if you, you change any small little thing when you mess with any one little thing. But Despite preaching that, he goes into the future and he sees what happens to Marty's family. And he says, you know, this is my best friend. This is his future. I can't let this stand. And so despite preaching everything against meddling with time, he goes back, grabs Marty and Jennifer and goes back forward to (laughs) meddle with time. And to me, that just shows, again, how much Doc cares about Marty as a friend and as a, a partner to a certain extent. And you just get to see more of their friendship in this movie. And despite him being so willing to meddle with time to rescue Marty's family from the fate of flushing their lives down the toilet, you see that he understands the potential consequences of time travel. And so he decides that dismantling the time machine is necessary and is in the best interests of essentially the universe, because he talks about how one of the consequences of Jennifer bumping into her older self could be a paradox that destroys the entire universe or you know, it may be limited just to our galaxy. (laughs) So Doc is operating on both levels here, on the intellectual and scientific level and also the emotional level. And I think that it's a character flaw to a certain extent, but to me, it strengthens that relationship. 
throughout the whole movie, their interactions together are just so fun. And I love the scene where once they've reunited after coming back to 1985 and they're in Doc's battered up garage and and Doc's drawing on the the board to explain Marty the the alternate reality that that they've arrived in when Marty realizes that he's screwed up big time by buying this almanac Doc kind of reassures him says it's all in the past and then Marty says you mean the future (laughs) he's like whatever they have these little moments just scattered throughout that are really small but they add up to something really big And in this movie, Great Scott is cemented as Doc's catchphrase because, you know, in the first film, he only actually says Great Scott one time, I believe. Only once, wow. Yeah, and this one, I think he says it like six times. So it's cemented as his catchphrase in this film, which again, this movie, I think, is very important in establishing sort of the tropes of the series in a good way. And that's one of them. The other character I have written down is Biff. And then we can maybe talk about other ones if you have them. You know, Biff, in the first film... He's established as a bad guy. He's a bad guy, but he also has some goofy tendencies. You know, in the first film, he basically sexually, well, not basically, he sexually assaults Lorraine. In this one, he's beyond a bad guy. He's basically confirmed as completely evil. He kills George. He assaults Lorraine. He attempts to kill Marty more than once. He's he's a scary guy in this movie. <laughs> yeah, he's downright evil bad to the bone. I mean, he, oh my God, like he is the way that he talks to, and, and I, I, you got to commend, um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the actor's name. Thomas F. Wilson. Yeah. Thank you. He, oh my God, what a performance by him. I mean, just such a strong, powerful performance and the way he delivers some of these lines. I love the line, um, where he's about they're on the rooftop of Biff Tower and Marty's trying to get him not to shoot him. And uh, he's like, they're going to match up the bullet with the gun. And he's like, kid, I own the police. And just the way he says it, it's just, and, and that's just one of, of many lines from him that are just incredibly powerful and demonstrate how evil he, he is. Yeah. I think Tom Wilson is probably one of the, well, Aside from maybe Doc and Marty, he's my favorite character to watch. He, yeah. He's just outstanding in all three films, really. This one, right. you get to see exactly how talented he is because he's <laughs> playing three different characters. Yeah. And so is Marty. Marty or Michael J. Fox is playing four different characters himself, his future self, his son, his daughter. But there's just not as much range there across the four characters as Biff has in the three characters he has here in Biff, Old Biff, and Griff. And especially going into the third film, I don't want to talk too much about that now, but going into the third film even, man, I would say that he is the best actor in the series. And I mean, Christopher Lloyd's probably my favorite actor of all time just because of all of his great character work and stuff like this and Roger Rabbit and all that kind of stuff. But man, Tom Wilson is so talented. I totally agree. And I enjoy watching his performance of of, uh, 19... 55 Biff just as much as as the 1985 because it's just so you can just see how this guy would turn into such a you know aside from the fact of that he got the almanac how how he turns out the way he does and there's a couple of moments that particularly from the 1955 that I love um, one being 
he lives with his grandma, of course, which is funny in and of itself. And the, the way that his grandma screams at him and he, and he responds is funny. But um, he's walking out of the house and and there's these kids playing and he picks up their ball and he's like, you want the ball? You want the ball? Go get it. And he throws it on the roof of the house. And it just it's like moments like that where you're like, yeah, this guy's an asshole. Yeah, that's one of the more innocent scenes from Biff in this movie, believe it or not. Right. (laughs) The one that really gets to me, aside from him trying to kill Marty, is the scene after he has picked up and paid for his car and Lorraine comes out of the dress shop. Oh, yeah. And he goes and he, again, Uh, tries to assault her. disgusting. And she attacks him and hits him over the head with the dress and she's running off and he just stands in the middle of the street yelling after her, I'm going to marry you one day, Lorraine. Someday you're going to be my wife. And... Can you imagine running across a guy and standing in the middle of the street yelling after a woman that she's going to marry him in that way? Like, it's such a creepy scene in that instance. So, again, Biff is just, he's a great villain. He's a a character that you love to hate because he's very hateable in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. Any other characters you want to talk about? I just want to mention the... (laughs) Flea, as a, as a Red Hot Chili Peppers fan, I, I think it's funny that Flea is in this movie. And then also, you already mentioned this, but Elijah Wood being playing the Gunman Clive game in the Cafe 80s is really funny that this is his very first film performance. Yeah, the only thing I would say about any of the other characters, we don't get a whole lot of growth from the other characters in this one, Yeah, which is why there's not as much to mention. But, you know, I mean, Leia Thompson is just as good. Yeah. James Tolkien returning as Mr. Strickland is great. What really stands out in the Back to the Future films is these actors and actresses who play the same characters in different ages and different times. So you have Leia Thompson playing Grandma Lorraine in 2015, but you also have her playing more in her own body and her own skin as young Lorraine in 1955. And to that same token, you've got Biff playing himself at three different ages, basically. And it's just insane. The aging process in these films, I think looks more believable than a lot of the CGI we get in movies nowadays. And (laughs) it's just impressive to me that these actors and actresses are so capable of just sort of embodying their characters at different ages, believably. Yeah, I love Lorraine as well. As a mom, uh, she shows so much care for Marty and just great performance. Uh, Really, really enjoyable. Yeah, that is the biggest takeaway from Lorraine for this movie, I think, is in the alternate 1985, when she's married to Biff at the time, you see how sort of scared into submission she is. It's very obvious that she loves her children and she's very proud to have been George's wife and is still very loyal to him as much as she can be. But to the same token, she has to submit to Biff if she wants her kids to be safe and if she wants them to lead lives outside of a prison cell. Uh, so that that's, again, uh, an aspect of Biff's character. He's got Lorraine married to him purely out of fear for her children, especially. That's the biggest takeaway from Lorraine in this movie, I think. Yeah, I agree. Well, cool. Let's go on to music a little bit. So Alan Silvestri is back. And, you know, a lot of the music here, I think, is very familiar. Uh, There's not an excess of new material. But what is new, I think, does stand out pretty well. There's this sort of menacing motif. It's almost like a rumbling in the brass and the, the, the trombones that sort of represents Biff or even just coming evil or 
bad things. I think the first time you really hear it, it was when Old Biff in 2015 is stealing the DeLorean. That's one of its more prominent uses. And then back in alternate 1985, as Marty is trying to figure out what the heck is going on, you hear it then. And there are a couple other instances in the film where it's just sort of the the bad things are happening motif. Those were the standout moments for me in terms of the music, aside from the uh, main theme, which is so iconic and an essential piece of the trilogy. Like when Marty is running through the streets, when they first go back to the to the corrupt 1985, the music is very menacing, like you said, and sets the tone just right. And in addition to that, there's also a couple moments where there's some harsh, stinging piano chords. One of those that, that got to me and really captured the emotion was when Marty is in Strickland's office and he finds the magazine that he thinks is the sports almanac, but he flips through it and it turns out to be ooh la la. And you get these harsh piano chords as he's flipping through going ooh la la, ooh la la. And it's it's just perfect. And there's a there's another maybe one or two other scenes of these harsh, intense moments where the music matches that emotion. Yeah, I think Silvestri does a good job of highlighting emotion in scenes. So in that one, that's a really good example. But then like the especially more emotive scenes where really emotional stuff is happening, he highlights those very well. There's Marty at George's grave where you get this beautiful gut-wrenching melodic theme that comes in as he's kneeling at his father's grave screaming, oh God, please no. And then you've got Another one that's highlighting the joy when the newspaper changes at the end. And another one when Doc disappears, it's fairly similar to Marty standing at the grave. And then another contrast. There's a lot of back and forth emotions in this movie. Uh, Another contrast at the very end when the Western Union letter comes and he's reading it and he realizes that Doc is alive. And we get that familiar flourish as Marty realizes, okay, I need to find 1955 Doc because 1985 Doc, the one I know and have spent all these many years with is still alive. And so now it's time to do something about that. So all those scenes are very well composed by Silvestri in highlighting the emotional beats. And then the original theme that you mentioned, it's always glorious when it returns, whether it's at the beginning when you get, when you're at the opening credit sequence or when you're returning to the clock tower sequence at the very end. It's just always a great thing when you're hearing that main theme because it's not overused in this movie. It's not overused at any point. It's always a great thing when it appears. Yeah. It's a key piece to the, the trilogy. I, it just wouldn't be the same without it. It's one of those it's one of those themes that it just transcends time and is just absolutely essential. The movie just would not be the same without it. Well, let's talk about the relevance and the sort of themes, the takeaways of this movie. Do you have any particular takeaways? For me, I just like the way that this movie makes me think about time and consequences of actions. I like to imagine that you know, there could be this alternate reality, whereas where if I had done A instead of B, this whole different reality can come true. And that's the part of the movie that really gets me thinking. Um, aside from that, there's just the values that Marty holds true and, and his courage and bravery that I enjoy that they communicate through his character. And then through Doc, I feel like while Marty's perhaps more emotional, Doc 
his character communicates more logical values and being more considerate about thinking through your actions before acting on them and being smart and scientific and and knowing knowing the whole picture knowing the backstory knowing the the concrete details i guess those would be the main ones but overall i think this movie for me is what really stands out to me is just the element of of the time travel and the consequences of actions well, you took it from me. Uh, the the number one I had written down was consequences to our actions. Everything we do has a cause and effect. You've got in this movie, Marty Jr. going with Griff and his gang. That is what initially causes Doc to go back to 1985 to get Marty to help change his future and to protect his kids and his family. You've got Marty, anytime he's called chicken, and the way he responds to that situation creates a consequence, whether it's the the car accident that we learn about that takes place in the end of the third film, or whether it's needles calling and asking him to scan in whatever that means and getting fired for that in the moment, or whether it's Biff at the dance that he loses the almanac for a moment because he can't just walk away from Biff calling him a chicken. And even Doc, you know, just choosing to help Marty's family, going back and bringing Marty to the future has its own consequence. And that eventually leads to the alternate 1985. So everybody does something in the movie that leads to something positive or negative happening. And yes, they're able to iron it out in the end, but you're right. Doc is looking at things more logically most of the time in this film, uh, as opposed to Marty looking at things from a more emotional standpoint. And so it, it, it shows the importance of both in certain circumstances, but to always consider the consequences of whatever we do act, whether it is logical or whether, whether it is emotional. And then the other one I had written down was, it, it's sort of a, a combo. There's dystopia, oligarchy, anarchy, whatever you want to refer to it as. Biff is in power because he has money. He controls the cops. He controls the school systems because there is no school system. He's taken down this courthouse and replaced it with the casino. He's made gambling legal. There's so much that Biff has accomplished just because he has money. And Hill Valley has become a place where crime rules. You've got police cars crashed into places. You've got chalk outlines of bodies drawn on the street. This is not a happy place to live. And so the movie, I think, is just warning against any one person having too much power or also the the value of education. The, the school is burned down. The library is closed because nobody cares in this setting. And so I think it's really important to consider all of these things. You don't want one person with the money in charge or multiple people even with money in charge of a situation. That's just asking for trouble. There's value in education. There's value in seeking out knowledge. And what we're seeing in the alternate 1985 is the scrapping of those values in favor of power and sex, drugs, and rock and roll, basically. So yeah, that was that was the other thing I considered. Anything else from you? We kind of already said this, but the greed just greed is just such a bad thing. And, and that the way that Marty was thinking was bad, that he was going to collect all these winnings with the almanac. And even though that, you know, he's a good guy, but even just his thought to do that resulted in him buying the almanac, which resulted in Biff obtaining it. So I guess it's just a warning against greed. Yeah, that's a good point too. I like that. And something I hadn't really considered. Now, what about any final thoughts for the movie? Well, I think that despite some hokey humor at the beginning and, and some 
perhaps some flaws in in the time travel. This is just a really, really fun movie to watch. And the setups and payoffs are incredibly gratifying. And it's really an on-the-edge-of-your-seat type of movie, especially as they're pers- as Marty's trying to get the almanac back from Biff. And the acting is superb. It's just an all-around great film. You get so much just in, in one package. You get the action. You get the sci-fi. You get humor and and you get love. So it's it's just a really complete package, and it's timeless. It, it never gets old. It's not my favorite or even my second favorite of the trilogy. And if you look at the time travel and you pick it apart, you're going to find flaw after flaw after flaw. But that's not really what is important in this movie. It doesn't need to be flawless in its representation of time travel. It adds to the overall story in the, of the trilogy in a big way. It gives you plenty to talk and think about, and it sets up a great finale. And I think that all those things going for it, it's a fantastic movie. And again, whether it's my favorite of the Back to the Future trilogy or not, it's still one of my favorite movies ever. So I guess that's it. <laughs> I, I, I like the movie, and I was glad to talk about it with you tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I really enjoyed revisiting this with you and i i'm jealous to this day that you got to meet christopher lloyd (laughs) yes i did meet christopher lloyd back in 2010 that's a story for maybe another time but i'm also wearing a back to the future shirt tonight and i'm wearing my back to the future part two hat so i was definitely excited to talk about this movie with you so thank you for mentioning it ethan and thank you for coming back to the show thank you so much for having me back and that is the end of the official 45th episode of cinescope Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast or at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. And don't forget, there's a giveaway going on right now all the way through episode 52, the big one-year mark. If you want to enter into that giveaway, if you want to win a movie or two, any movie that we've talked about up to episode 52, rate and review on iTunes or share the show on Facebook or Twitter and make sure to tag the show so that I see that. If you have feedback or ideas, email me at thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also use that if you want to co-host the show. If you have a movie that you love that you think you could talk about, let me know and we'll get you on. Now, Ethan, where can people find you and your work online? So you can find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore small. And my personal development blog that I mentioned before is friendlywarrior.com. Great. The best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A and Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And all the show notes, all the contact information can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that's all for this week. Thank you, Ethan. It's been awesome having you on the show again. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 45. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 46. Have fun and celebrate movies. Mm-hmm.